Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. My name is Dave, and I'll be reading the scripture for you today. I'll be reading from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you, going, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. This is the word of the Lord. So I was reading this study um, by a group called Insights West about the most respected professions in Canada. And I was sort of uh, disappointed to see that being a pastor or a priest or a minister was like the bottom third. So my profession is the bottom third. Now, I won't list the rest, but I have to say that the fact that the accountants were higher up on the list was troubling to me on so many levels. But anyways, um, so that's it's kind of the reality that, that I live in, uh, in terms of being a pastor of a church, that I live in a culture that really doesn't actually look favorably on that role. Um, and there's all kinds of reasons for that, and we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. But uh, I have to sort of tell you, you're not alone. Uh, I'm not alone in this, because you're kind of in it with me. Like, you're at church today, which some of you know that some of your relatives, or maybe a spouse, or maybe neighbors and stuff, don't really think that it's a good thing that you go to church. I mean, some people might respect you, but we've sort of moved from the past where it was like, oh, like, if you go to church, you're sort of a respected person. That's kind of a good thing. And, and maybe I might like to do that, but I don't go. And then it was a shift of, well, you know, that's good for you, but that's not good for me. And now we're in a place where they're saying, like, that's actually not really good for you. And if this is your first time in church, you just have to know, if you tell anyone you went, you're going to get mixed reactions. Now, don't leave because we have Starbucks coffee and cupcakes after. So that's, it's worth staying just for that. Um, but there's lots of reasons for that. Like, and maybe you've even experienced that shift, or any of you that are sort of older than 30, you know that shift in terms of how the church and let's call it religion and your own personal thing used to be, is that we now live in a culture that not only thinks um, our beliefs are different, some people think they're evil. Like I was uh, listening to a, a message the other day, and the guy was saying that 27% of millennials, so those sort of under the age of 35, think that the Bible is a book that is used to oppress other people. So if you go to church and people assume, well, you read the Bible there, you read a book that's used to oppress other people, 27% of the, of the next generation coming along. There's lots of reasons for that. One of them is this picture. Um, now, there's, there's lots of things wrong with that picture. Um, one of them is that it seems like that baby is that lady's giving her baby for Donald Trump to raise in the White House. So that's maybe, I don't know, that's kind of a weird picture. But then there's this person there who says, thank you, Lord Jesus, for President Trump. Now, I'm not here to talk politics. But if you 
said, well, what if the average person in the media says, well, what is Donald Trump associated with? Just word association. Um, racism these days, sexism, and greed. But somehow, in some people's mind, there's a close relationship between him and Jesus, which is mind-blowing, and yet that's the reality. And so that's why people think about church and the Bible and maybe what you're doing here right now this morning in maybe a not-so-positive light. There has been a shift that's been happening, which is why when I talk to you about the words that Jesus said to us as the church, there may be something in you that cringes at those words, maybe outwardly, but, but definitely inwardly, when he says this to his disciples. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and the end of the earth. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, some of you here or some of you that have people in your life would cringe and say, see, this is the problem with Christianity. This is the problem with all religions. Why are they trying to convert people? Like, this is a statement of like, go out and make everybody Christians. Change their culture, change their belief system. And you know what? If you look at the history of the church as they've tried to, in a sense, do that, part of the picture is pretty ugly. Like all of the things that would come to mind, all of the things that maybe come to your mind has kept, kept you away from church or maybe what you grew up with and even, you know, just other people in your life that would, if you talk about it, you say, well, yeah, there was the Crusades and there was the Spanish Inquisition and there was, um, you know, lots of stuff, you know, holy wars, religious fundamentalism, is one of the major problems in our world right now. A lot of blood has been spilled in the name of religion. And this is a bad thing. And it's a legitimate question, like whether this is actually something good that Jesus said. Jesus did say it. But as we read it out loud, we may think, oh, you had that reaction going, no, no, like why can't, why can't you just, you know, live and let live? I want to just address it for the moment. We're not going to spend the whole message on this. But I think just to say, okay, there's some legitimacy to some of the questions as to why we might question whether this is a good statement or not. Um, but I think just to say this, that Jesus, in his life, in the things that he taught and the eyewitnesses who were with him who wrote down what he said, was against racism, was against sexism. He was the most progressive man in terms of how he treated women. And, and I read one person saying, you know, when they were younger, they asked their dad, hey, why didn't God come as a woman? Like, why did he come as a man? You know, that kind of seems patriarchal, doesn't it? And his dad said to him, well, you know what? Maybe God came as a man so he could show men how to treat women. And that's what Jesus did. He did something that no woman could have done for themselves in a culture that we think, oh, you know, we're still fighting for women's rights today, and we are. But what Jesus did and said and and the way he treated women as equals and invited them to be disciples with his other disciples was mind-blowing in a Near Eastern culture. So Jesus was against sexism. He was against racism. He was against classism. He was against religious power brokers who used their position and used God to make other people feel bad, judged others, and used it for their own gain. He was against greed. He was against all of the things that we would say and even look at sometimes got mixed up with the history of the church and say, we can just safely say Jesus would condemn all of that. Let's just be straight about that. I'm not making it up. That's not new news. It's old news. It's written down in the four biographies of Jesus. So much of the way the church has acted in the past is nothing like the way Jesus has acted. And let's be honest too. 
There's all kinds of people that had no faith. There's all kinds of atheists that have done a lot of damage in the world too. The only difference is Jesus' rule for his followers was do unto others as you have had them do unto you. The atheist rule is the strong survive, right? It's a principle of evolution. The strong survive. There's nobody who can wag a finger at whatever damage atheism has done in the past, but at least we can say, hey, Jesus would look at the history of the church in many ways and say, you're nothing like me. You're nothing like what I asked you to do. So that's one thing. And I think the other thing we need to be honest of is saying, what did many Jesus followers do? Like there are things that we take for granted in a culture today, all of which have come through the lives of those who said, hey, if this is what Jesus is like, this is what we're going to do as we live life. So if you look at the early church, one of the reasons it exploded was the way that they cared for the poor and the sick. If you ever wonder why so many hospitals are St. Mike's this or St. Joseph that or whatever, it's because Christians were the ones who started the first hospitals. They started the first universities. You read the, the letters and the documents and even the Latin that's written in Harvard and Yale and all of the Ivy League schools. It was Christians who believed, hey, God has given us a mind to be used. Education is actually for everyone. Healthcare education, and almost every humanitarian agency in the world was started by Christians because they believed this is how Jesus lives. You shouldn't be surprised. You look at the record of Jesus' life, and then he says to a whole bunch of people, follow me. Well, that's exactly what they did. And so I think we need to realize, wait, our world would be in a much worse place if Jesus' followers hadn't gone into all the world and did what they did. In fact, there are values today that we hold. We hold to the golden rule, even though we reject the one who said it. There are values that have so shaped our culture and our life that we just say, oh, isn't that how you treat other people? And yet if you look any place that Christianity has been for a long period of time, you will find labor boards, you will find equal rights for women and children, and you will find places that are trying to only keep one set of books, economic and accounting integrity. Every place in the world that Christianity has been for a long period of time. Now Ferguson, who's a, um, a writer, an author, and a historian, he's not a believer, he's not a follower of Christ, wouldn't call himself a Christian, but he said if you look at the economic boom that followed the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century and the 17th century, it was this belief. They said, wait, all work is holy work. Right? When they said it's not just the priests who have holy work, all work is holy work, and that made everybody work as if they were working to God, and the economy in Europe exploded. And he said the economy that grew in the West, the reason it grew in the West is because they believe this, die now, live later. Pay now, work hard now, and I'll reap a reward later. He said, he's not a Christian, he said this is an economic principle that was based on people's beliefs in Jesus Christ who died on the cross and was risen later. Pain now, gain later. And he said that principle drove the Western economy. And he said now as we have rejected the Christian values, he said our economy's in trouble because everybody's looking for gain now for as little pain as possible. These are, these are secular historians that are making observations about economy. And in fact, there was a study done in 2010 at the University of Pennsylvania and then followed up by a group, uh, Cardis group, in, Canada, uh, in Toronto in 2015 and 2016 that just said, does the church have a positive economic impact on the city? And what they found at the study in, in, in the city of Philadelphia, and you can look this up on Cardis.ca and in Cardis as well, that every place the church has been and for every dollar the church spends in sort of social enterprise and whatever, there's a $5 multiplication factor that happens in the community around it. And that the social and physical and educational and economic well-being of the city grows with every church that is planted in that place. 
which means if, even if you're just you're sort of out of pure greed, if you just want economic thriving, if the mayor of our city and the mayor of the city of Toronto, all the politicians said, how do we grow the economy and make sure people are being looked after? You go on the website and say, here's all the things we want, social services and economic thriving and blah, blah, blah. How do you do that? My answer, plant more churches. Because historically, that seems to be what's happening. And so I think just to say, you know, for those of us or those of you who have people in your life that say, oh, the church is bad, the religion is bad, it's whatever, it's like, well, you know what? Like, it seems to be that the record of humanity is not very good, whether they were religious or irreligious. But Jesus is something different. Now, but how about those of you that would say, okay, no, I am a Christian, I'm here, that's why I'm here. There's still something in us that looks at this statement and says, you know, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And there's something in us that sort of cringes a little bit, and there's, there's two reasons for that, and I want to camp out here this morning. The first one is the word witness, because when we think about, oh, Jesus asked us to be our witnesses, we're thinking about street corner preacher, right? Turn or burn, you know? Like, God loves you, but if you don't love him back, you're going to hell. Like, that's what we think witnesses, and we're like, oh my gosh, like, really? I'm supposed to do that, Jesus? Like, can, can I, you know, there's all kinds of negative connotations maybe that come with that. And maybe some of us grew up in homes where we felt like faith was sort of rammed down our throat. Or, or we, we got embarrassed with our parents, or we were part of a church that was sort of very like a witness being, here's what we stand against. You know, as, as one pastor said, you know, we're, we're supposed to be the body of Christ, but it's like we have no arms and no legs, and we're just a mouth that talks about what we're against. Right? Maybe that was your religious tradition, or maybe that's what you sort of see. And it's like, that's what comes to mind when you think of witness. We're supposed to be bold and take a stand for Jesus and whatever. I think what we need to go back to is say, well, what, is, what did the disciples hear when they heard him say that? It was 12 of them in that little circle. When he's saying, listen, you are going to be my witnesses. There's three ideas, actually, when we think about what that word witness would have been. First and foremost is the first thing that you think of even from a legal context. When someone is, a, is called up as a witness, they are witnesses to an event. They're witnesses to an event. What's the event? The resurrection of Jesus. Right? They were eyewitnesses to a man who was killed, and a few days later, they were eating breakfast with. They were witnesses to that event. And actually, if you read the book of Acts, and Acts is the kind of the biography of the church, you'll find them repeatedly talking about this thing. Jesus who was crucified, but who God raised from the dead, and that which we have seen with our own eyes and touched with our hands, that's what we're speaking about. They were witnesses, and Jesus says, you are going to tell people and be firsthand eyewitnesses to this event. It was one of the criteria that they said, who can be an apostle? Who can be someone in that inner circle who's going to represent? The very first and really the only criteria was they were an eyewitness to the resurrection. The only one that got kind of grandfathered in there was the apostle Paul because he had a vision of Jesus and they were pretty sure he had seen him because he was trying to kill Christians one day and the next day he was saying, you should love Jesus. Something happened to this guy and he knew all the eyewitnesses. And those accounts were being circulated within a few years of Jesus' death. So anyone who was alive then, could have refuted it. They were eyewitnesses to an event. That's what he says. You're just going to go and tell everyone that you saw me dead and then you saw me raised to life and that I told you I was going to do it. That, that's what the, the first thing when they were witnesses is what it meant. The second that, that sort of gets beyond this idea of like a legal sort of witness, yes, I saw this, is firsthand experience of a relationship. In, in the scriptures, and for some of these, um, they were all Jews at the time in that circle. Of course, the church is now filled with every nation under heaven. But at the time, they were Jews. And in, in the Jewish idea of, 
of knowledge, the word yada, which is in Hebrew, was not like, I know you, you know, we've met. I know you as in firsthand experience. Like, I have experienced you as a person in, that I am in relationship with. And so this idea of witness was, we have experienced friendship with Jesus firsthand. We know him. We have eaten with him. We have traveled with him. We've done life with him. He has been in our homes. We know him. Not only did we see him dead and then alive again, we are people who are firsthand witnesses to this. And then he says, and this is what catalyzed the church movement, they became followers to a way of life. They were witnesses in, in the sense of saying, we are now living like Jesus. We are now living, following in the footsteps, in the path of our rabbi, of our teacher, of our Lord, Jesus. Just look at that list for a moment. To be a witness is not about trying to convince someone to do something they don't want to do. It's not about just going to someone and saying the same thing over and over again. It's not about trying to convince someone that if they died tonight, you know, where they might go to hell tomorrow. That is not the first century understanding of witness. When Jesus says, be my witnesses, go and tell everyone that even death has been conquered. We saw someone die, and we saw him again a few days later. Now even death doesn't have the final word on life. That, that, go tell everyone, this is what you have experienced. Go tell people about the firsthand experience you have had with me as your Lord, as your Savior, and then maybe most amazingly, as your friend. And live life the way I taught you to live. And Jesus says, be my witnesses. He says, go live like this. And just everywhere you go, just tell people. And the second one, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Sounds like world domination, right? Like, why is he telling them to go to the ends of the earth? What did Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth signify? Jerusalem was those they loved, those that were like them, their family, their same ethnic group. Maybe their same extended family. Judea was the region Jerusalem was in, which included those who are different from you. In the region, there were people, maybe from different family backgrounds, from different socioeconomic backgrounds, from different sort of tribes, and sort of a little bit outside of your circle. Remember we talked a couple weeks ago about that inner circle? Jesus is saying, hey, Jerusalem, your inner circle. Judea, outside of that. Samaria, those you hate. Samaritans were people that the Jews thought were like half-breeds, fakes. They didn't deserve the love and the grace of God. And Jesus says, actually, go to them as well. That's why the most famous parable he told when someone says, well, how far should I love? Who's my neighbor anyway? Jesus told this parable where the Samaritan is the hero <laughs> to say, everyone, Jerusalem, those you love, Judea, those who are different from you, Samaria, even those you hate, to the ends of the earth, those you don't even that the calling of the church, these are, if you think about this, these are Jesus' first words to the church. Like, this is what the church is. He started with that group of 12. He's saying, this is what I want you to do. These are my first words to you. You're going to be my witnesses. You're going to witness to the fact that death has been conquered. You're going to witness to the fact that you know me personally and that I have changed your life. You're going to witness to the fact that now you've, I've given you a new way to live. And you're going to do it there is no limit to where this will go. As the church, 
we take this seriously. That there's meant to be for every church community, every faith community, no matter where they live, no matter how small or how big or what building they're in, that there needs to be this reverberating effect, this ripple effect that goes out from the center of our lives with Jesus and goes and touches basically anybody that we can get to in any sphere of life that we have, that every church is meant to have this reverberating from the inside out posture. This expectation and belief that Jesus, what Jesus has done for me isn't just for me. That I am meant to be a firsthand witness to his life changing my life. And that there's no limits to how far the ripples will go on that. That this will go outward. The, the way we put it into words, probably about, I don't know, I guess it was four years ago, is deep faith, wide embrace. You've heard me say that before. The vision of our church, deep faith, wide embrace. Why we believe? Because Jesus has made us to know him as friend. First-hand experience knowledge. You are my friend, you are my Lord, you are my Savior. That every one of us here, every one of us is offered that friendship with God. It doesn't need to be mediated through a priest or a church or certain holy book or holy places. You have access into the presence of God through friendship with Jesus. And that the call really that every one of us has is to just know him more, to know his ways more, to know what it means to live like he lived. And then wide embrace. Because if you know Jesus and you follow him, you cannot help but move Jesus kept busting those circles, right? Those you love, those are different from you, those you might even hate, those you've never even met before. The wider your embrace, the more you know Jesus. And it just happens over and over and over. Deep faith, wide embrace. And as the church, about a year ago, we said, you know, we kind of just turned, actually, I think we're, we turned 12 next weekend or something like that. Um, but two years ago, as we sort of passed a decade, we said, okay, Jesus, like, what does this look like for our church? We were praying about it as a leadership team saying, how do we do this in this city, in this community? We've been here for a while. And we kind of came up with this thing as saying, like, we actually think that God has called us to multiply congregations all over the GTA, like wherever there are places that need new communities. Because like I said, they're building new communities and they're building new schools and they're building new community centers and they're building new Walmarts, but nobody's building new churches. It's not in their frame of mind, and we're going, no, wait, like, the economic, social flourishing of the city is at stake. So we want to be a part of that. We say we don't just want to get bigger where we are, because quite frankly, we're running out of room in here anyways. And this is the biggest theater we know in, in the city of Vaughan right now, in terms of a, a single place. And we know that chances are, wherever you live, and your neighbor probably commutes like an hour a day at least, that they're not going to commute on Sundays to go to church. So if you could go to church closer to where you live, that would be a good thing. And so we said, okay, over the next 10 years, we'd love to see five congregations impacting 3,000 people in the places where we live. And the numbers are simply to say this. We need some kind of a goal to say, hey, we actually have to do this. This is hard to do. We actually have to plan and send people around. But we also know that every place we plant, there's a circle of impact that happens, like just even those studies have done. Like it's not just the people who come through the doors here, but there are hundreds of people in this city that have been affected positively by our church, by things we've done in the neighborhood and by the alpha course that we've done or the marriage course that we've held at different places or the human trafficking stuff we're trying to fight. And apparently if you read this week, there were uh, a few million dollars released by the government to, to a whole bunch of anti-human trafficking agencies this week. Amazing news. Like, the numbers are staggering. 
which is incredible. We've been praying about that. Like We know there's people we'll never meet, right? The, that circle to the ends of the earth, people you don't know. And our, our friends in Guinea who are working, some of you have had the chance to go over there, but many of you have prayed and given money to people you will never meet because you some of who may never come in church, that we will have an impact to thousands of people beyond some of who may never come into the doors of this Sunday morning gathering. And so this is our plan, this is our hope, and, and this was like a year ago that we started praying about this and talking about this. It's kind of crazy actually to see what God has done in the space of a year. As we started raising money for this permanent space that we were going to have, which is going to be a 10-year lease in a building nearby, and God's kind of changed that plan, and now it looks like something even bitter, bigger in the heart of the city with potentially a gym that we could run community programs out of, and that will be permanent space for us. We had no idea that would happen when we started this a year ago. We started talking about multiplication in theory. Suddenly, somebody called and said, hey, I'm working with a church in Bolton. I think they would like to be a part of what you're talking about. <laughs> and we started meeting with them, and next we you know, like Dave's here, and he's starting next week. It was a year ago. And just even the, the first conversation that Dave and I had, saying, hey, you know, what's, you know, can you come speak at our church? Sure, what are you doing? Well, actually, I just resigned from my youth ministry job because I feel like there's something else, but I don't know what it is yet, but I know I'm done here. Oh, well, what is it that you're interested in? Oh, kind of multiplication church planning. You know, God was already at work there. We didn't know. It wasn't in our scope. We just knew, hey, this as the church is our best attempt to try to do this. It's not a perfect plan. It's not the best plan. There's probably things later that we'll be like, oh, I wish we knew that then. But we just say, God, we trust you so much, and we know that you have called us to have a reverberating impact to the world around us because what you have done for us cannot be kept to ourselves. And so that's what we've stepped into. Now, you may look at, at that, you know, the five congregations, 3,000 people in the place where we live, or you might just look at Jesus' words to say, you know, to the ends of the earth and say, that's kind of crazy. How, how is that going to happen? Who can actually do that? Someone have a clock? I don't have. How am I doing? Okay, good, I'm good. Um, how does that happen? Th and I'm telling you, they thought the same thing. There were 12 of them in a circle with Jesus, and he was leaving. And they were caught between Greeks who thought that th what they believed was dumb, Rome who didn't want anything to do with it and was the power of like money and wealth and personal pleasure. Sounds like the culture we're living in now. And then Judaism that thought what they believed was evil. Twelve of them. Jesus says, go to the ends of the earth. And they're thinking, what is, I thought this was the ends of the earth. What did they know of at that point? They were all from Galilee. They'd never traveled more than 100 miles from where they were born. They feel like often we do as the church in this culture saying, look, there's people who think what we believe is dumb. There's people who think what we believe is sort of like not, like there's culture, cultural changes that are so strong and tempting and influential. And then there's other people who think what we believe is evil. How is this ever going to happen? Well, they did what Jesus asked them to do in the same way that I believe we're meant to do what Jesus asked them to do by, by asking these two questions. And you won't find these in the gospel. I just made them up, but I think it's, pretty accurate to describe what they did. They asked two questions. What's in my hands? And who else is this for? What's in my hands? Who else is this for? Twelve of them started that. They just started kind of going where they went, saying, well, Jesus told us to tell people about the resurrection, so I'm just going to tell you. I'm going to tell my family members. And, and those family members told other family members. And suddenly the church grew to 12, to 120, 
to 3,000. And then there was this guy named Saul who hated what they were doing because he thought it was evil to believe that God would become a man. And they were, they were, they were kind of brokering some a kind of new cult and bad religion. And so he was throwing them in jail and torturing them and killing them until Jesus said, hey, stop what you're doing. I'm the real deal. Now you're going to go and tell everybody else about me. And now he became, well, there's five billion copies of the Bible that have apparently been printed since the 1800s. And the Apostle Paul wrote most of the New Testament, so he's the most published author in the world. He only ever wrote about one thing, Jesus. One thing led to another, to another. And now two and a half billion people in the world today call him Lord and Savior. And I've said this before, but it amazes me every time it comes out of my mouth. There's more songs sung about him in every language in the world than anyone who's ever lived. From those 12 people said, uh, okay, we'll just, what do we have in our hands? And who else is this for? There's one point where Peter and John are walking into the temple, and there's a guy there who's lame from birth, and he was begging at the temple. And he said, hey, you know, money, money, money. And they said, look at us. We don't have any money, but what we have we give to you. In the name of Jesus, stand up. All we have is this reality of this person who has defeated death itself, and so we're not afraid of death anymore. And they went to their graves, some of them murdered, for what they refused to stop believing. And the church has been changed. And literally, all over the world, this has happened. Most of us aren't Jewish. Most of us never came from that part of the world. Many of us speak different languages than Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. Probably I've never heard any of you speak in those languages here. But, but there's like over 40 nationalities represented in just in this church alone, in many different mother tongues. And yet you're here singing to Jesus. Because those people said, okay, well, well what's in my hands? It's, it's not just for me, so I'm just going to go. And interestingly, when Saul was trying to kill everybody in the church, you know what happened? They all scattered because they were afraid. But everywhere they were scattered, in ones and twos, they just told everybody why they were running away. <laughs> oh, well, we've got this guy Jesus, and he's changed our lives. And the gospel spread. There was no Bible. They didn't have, they didn't have any of the apostles to call and say, hey, I'm just going to say this. Does that sound right to you? You know, because sometimes we live and say, oh, I don't, I don't, I'm not a pastor. I can't preach. None of them were pastors. None of them preached. They didn't have a Bible to refer to. They didn't have an app to go on. They didn't have a Google they could look up and say, is this true? They didn't even have the apostles they can call and say, I'm not sure if I'm being heretical here, but here's what I'm saying. And yet somehow the message remained. What we have today is the same thing they said 2,000 years ago because the Holy Spirit went with them and preserved it and did stuff through them they could have never imagined. That's why Jesus says, hey, go be my witnesses, but wait. I'm going to send you some power to do it. The Holy Spirit became the first witness of the church and told all of them and told everyone else that they told through them. See, we've been given the same spirit. We've been given the same task, and we can ask the same two questions. What's in my hands? What is in your hands? Some of you have a lot of influence in your workplace. Some of you have a lot of influence just in your family. People seem to come to you for help. Some of you are just really good at hanging out with people. Your Google Calendar's full. You have influence. You have friendships. Some of you have money in your hands. Some of you have gifts, personality, opportunities. Some of you have just one other person in your life that you know is looking to you for help right now. And hopefully every one of us has in our hands this encounter with Jesus that's saying, I can't really explain it, but he changed my life. They didn't have all the ideas perfectly right. They just knew that one thing. We've met him, and he's changed my life. And that's what you have in your hands, and it's enough. 
It isn't just for you. So who else is this for? The more we ask that question, the more the church grows and is changed. I have on the table here the, the bread and the cup. This morning we're going to have a chance to actually come down and, and receive that. And, and depending on the church tradition or whatever you come from, you're not sure you get a piece of bread, just dip it in. You can put it in your mouth right away. I know some of you are from Catholic backgrounds said, like, we couldn't, we couldn't leave the table without putting it in our mouth. Some of you guys walk up to your chair. That's crazy. You do whatever you like. <laughs> but this is a symbol of what is in our hands, that Jesus Christ has given his life for you. That the first move in this whole relationship with Christ is not yours to clean up your life, to do something better, to make yourself look good enough that he might turn his face towards you, but say, actually, I have given my life for you. What is in your hands is my life. It's why we actually don't just talk about it. We do it. We touch it and we taste it. We say, he is as real to me as this. And what I have in my hands from him is enough. And so that's why Jesus said with those 12, you know, before he told them to do that, he said this, this is my body. It's going to be broken for you. For you. Remember I said to you once before, like, you know, the Last Supper, Leonardo da Vinci's painting, just imagine yourself, squeeze yourself in there, right between Peter and James. This is my body broken for you. Some of you have never taken this before. You're pretty sure it's for everybody else except you. It's for you. Maybe this is your first day. You say, actually, okay, Jesus. <laughs> this is what you've done for me. This is what I have in my hands. It's enough. He took the cup and he said this. You know, wine was such a common thing. He took something so common, he said, you'll never look at this the same. Every time you taste this to your lips, it'll never taste the same again. Because you remember we had this time, and I said to you, this is a picture of my blood which is poured out for you. Greater love has no one than this, that they lay down their life for their friend. And no longer are you servants, but I call you friends. And so come this morning. We're going to open up the table. And if this is your first time or the hundredth time, whatever you want to say, yeah, Jesus, I want that in my hands because I have nothing else to give the world around me. But what I have from you is enough.